You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, When Ancient Meets Current, The Seven Churches in Revelation. For more sermons and resources, visit firstfamily.church. You know, cities can be known for things. In fact, I'll just give you a quick quiz to prove my point. I'll say a city, you tell me what it's known for. Now, granted, there may be one or two that could uh, rank, but I think we'll get the general idea here. Like if I said to you, Paris, you might say what? The Eiffel Tower. Now, some of you may have said something else, but generally, at, pretty quickly, your mind goes to that landmark. It's known for the Eiffel Tower. If I were to say to you, New York City, most of you would probably say 9-11. It's kind of become what they're known for now. That whole saga and the, and the situation and what it began in this country. If I said to you, Detroit, what would most of you say? Cars, right. GM, Ford, it's just, some of you might say bankruptcy now, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's known for its cars. What if I said to you, uh, Woodstock? You wouldn't want to say it out loud, would you? But you'd be thinking it, wouldn't you? <laughs> Because we know kind of what that's known for. What if I said to you, Las Vegas? Gambling, casinos, you have all those thoughts in mind. Well, Pergamum was known for something as well. It's an odd name for a city. It was known as Pergamos. Uh, Sometimes the word was in a neuter form as Pergamon. In our current translation, we know it as Pergamum. And it's the third city that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. It's our focus today. And we're going to be looking at what God says not only about this city, but what God says to the church in this city. So take your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to walk through these verses, verses 12 through 17, which detail information about the city and the church and about the Christ. We'll make some pretty strong application today. I would encourage you to text in your questions. I will not take them live, but I want to use them next week to begin the message because this week's letter to Pergamum, and to be frank with you, next week's letter to Thyatira are somewhat similar in some ways. And I want to use your questions to kind of help us understand more about the the topics next week. So feel free to text them in. I'll use them next week to begin the message. I mainly this, this morning want to make sure we understand more about how this church was compromising its position, which is really what we're going to see Jesus said about this church. So here we go to the church at Pergamum. And let's understand some things about the text first, just to make sure you understand what we're doing in a visual format. Here's a map of the uh, seven churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3 and kind of the circular pattern that the letters took. We believe that the letters were written for all of the churches, even though they are each addressed singularly. We do believe that Ephesus read what was written to Smyrna. Smyrna read what was written to Pergamum and so forth. John was stationed at Patmos. I would say maybe more like exiled to Patmos. And from there, he wrote these letters to seven actual churches in these historical cities of what we now know to be the area of Turkey. That's where they were. You can go today, in fact, and see ruins of these churches in these cities. We're now on our third stop, Pergamum. 
Here's what the Bible would say to us in these verses about this city and this church. Follow along with me, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. So here's what Jesus would say. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. And you'll notice that he again here says he knows a lot about this church. In every letter, he says he knows about them. And so let's understand that Jesus knows our church better than we do. He is walking in and out of it. He's living among it. He is leading it. He's the head of it. He's the shepherd of it, the chief shepherd. You don't know this church like Jesus does. And by the way, he knows your role and part in this church, to the good or the bad, right? Jesus knows this church. He says to Pergamum, I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Interesting phrase. We'll explain why in a moment. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Here again, this phrase, where Satan dwells. So twice, Jesus says that this church is located in a city that is known as the residence of Satan. It must have been a very treacherous place because Antipas was killed there for his faith. And they're commended that, that they are holding fast to Christ's name just as Antipas did. Incidentally, we don't have anything in the Bible about this man named Antipas. History, however, does give us some indication of what happened to Antipas. Tradition holds that uh, he was imprisoned and then because of his faith he was placed inside of some type of hollow um, metal or steel kind of bull. More than likely, it was representing a god, little g god. And then they poured either hot oil or some type of substance inside the oil, and they burned him alive inside this false god-like structure. Um, The implication being that your god is not as big as our god. But that was their temporary understanding We'll see later that they may have killed Antipas. They could not stamp out Christianity. So they're commended for holding fast to the name of Christ. And yet he says in verse 14, there are a few things that, that he has against them. He says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. We'll tell more about who Balaam was later. Just hang tight. Because it says here that the, the, the teaching of Balaam must have been connected to this. Balaam taught Balak. By the way, Balak was a foreign king of the Old Testament. Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So there are two things that were involved in the teaching of Balaam. Eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. We'll say more later, just kind of get the gist of the text. This is what he held against them. There were some in that church who were holding to these false doctrines, these false heresies. And then he says in verse 15, you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They were a group probably similar in the effect as the uh, ones who followed the teaching of Balaam, but they weren't the same group in my opinion. They were two different groups, but they both held to views that you could could kind of identify with the culture in whatever way you wanted to, 
And in that culture, that meant eating food sacrificed to idols. And you could just practice sexual immorality. The Nicolaitans and the Balaamites, we'll call them, both considered licentiousness uh, to be no problem. Live however you want sexually. There are no parameters. There are no guardrails. And do whatever you can do and have to do to make sure the culture approves of you. Even if it means going into their temples and eating their food and, and partaking in their festivities, it's okay. This is the bedrock kind of belief of both of these groups. And this is what Jesus said he had against this church, that within it there were people who held to these things. He thus says in verse 16, Therefore repent. In other words, change your mind and your ways. Stop this and begin this. That's the gist of repentance. It's not a hard word. Jesus here is not hard to understand, is he? Repent of following the way of Balaam and the way of the Nicolaitans. Licentiousness, loose living, cultural adaptation at all costs. Repent of that. Change your mind that that matters and realize that holding fast to my name, just like Antipas did, that's really what matters and counts. If you don't, he says, I will come to you soon and wage war against them. Now notice that. That's an interesting use of two pronouns. He says, I will come to you. And that's the common pronoun in the letters to the churches, isn't it? I know you. I know your works. But here he now says, I'll come to you and I'll wage war against whom? Them. He's speaking here of those in the camp of, the ba- of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. I think the indication here is this. They may have been in the church physically, we'll even say organizationally, but they were not in Christ spiritually. And so Christ would come to that church, and yet he would wage war against them. Meaning, there's a separate entity. You're not part of the family, and I'll wage war against you, even though you appear to be within the physical realm of the church, maybe the geographical location. Now, that's a, that's a scary Use of two pronouns. Because it could mean that even within us, watch this, watch this church, watch it now. There are those who are them. Can I ask you a really point blank question early on? Which one are you? Are you us? Are you in Christ? Have you repented, trusted in the sacrificial, substitutionary, merciful, gracious work of Christ to forgive your sin through the cross, His resurrection? Have you repented of sin and trusted in Christ so that you are in Christ and His church? Or are you just kind of geographically nearby? Are you hanging out in the circumference of church and enjoying its benefits, but you're really not in with what they believe? So you'd be considered a them. I think it's a legitimate question to ask. Which pronoun characterizes you? So Jesus says here, if there's no repentance, I'll come, I'll wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. It's always an analogous reference to the word of God. That's the sword that Christ has. His weapon of choice is his word. The standard he sets by his own authority. And thus he says in verse 17, He who has an ear, if you have an ear, would you grab it and pull it? 
That's good. All right. Just work with me here. I know you probably think that's a little childish, but it gets the point across. If you've got an ear, he says what? Hear what the Spirit says to thee. Say it with me. Now, notice again, I'll say this probably every week. That's the plural use of the word. And yet he's writing a singular letter to one church, right? His point being this. He wants all seven churches, and I think by application, all churches across the centuries now, to hear what he says to this one church. He's writing to one church, according to verse 12, the angel of the church in Pergamum. And yet he wants all those with ears in all the churches to hear. He then says, to the one who conquers, which I think would be synonymous to those who are repenting, to those who endure, to those who hold fast, as they did in the days of Antipas, to those who conquer, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's a lot of meaning there. We'll get to it. Let's approach these verses from three headings. Let's talk briefly about the city. Let's talk extensively about the church in that city. And then let's look beautifully at the Christ who is the answer to this church's problems within that city. Can we do that? Briefly, what about this city? Well, the name Pergamum means citadel. You see it in verse 12 there. To the angel of the church in Pergamum. So these leaders, the messengers or the messenger in the church in this city, the city was known as a citadel of sorts. It sat a thousand feet high. Unlike Ephesus or Smyrna, it was kind of elevated, and so it was known as kind of a citadel. And one of the things they became famous for among its libraries and, and temples to false goddesses was the fact that it had uh, prepared animal skins for writing. In fact, parchment is one of the things that kind of uh, began from this city. They are also known for emperor worship. What you see on the screen is a, a picture of some of the relics, the artifacts, the remains of one of the high elevated uh, altars at a temple there. Could have been to the god Zeus. They had other gods and goddesses they used. In fact, this city was so, and I'll, I'll use this phrase facetiously here. This city was so good at false worship, at worship of false gods, that they actually won an award uh, for, for emperor worship in several cities, including the ones listed in Revelation 2 and 3, Ephesus and Smyrna to be exact. There was a contest they held to see which city could be the greatest at emperor worship, who could build the greatest temple, who could honor Caesar the most, who could lift him up as a deity, the greatest. And if you won that award, you were known as the, the I think it's called the uh, uh, Neo, the word slips me now, I had it in first service. It's kind of Neocarpus, something like that. It, it means to have the achievement of honoring the deity in the greatest way. And Pergamum won this award twice as a city. They were known as the city in which we'll worship men more than any other city. False gods, false goddesses, emperors, Caesars, they lift them up as God. And so you can see why this city was very treacherous for those who said Caesar's not God, Zeus is not God, Jesus Christ is God. Are you with me? That's a very treacherous thing to say. That was uh, dangerous, so much so that Antipas lost his life over it. This is the city in which this church is located. What does Jesus say to this church in this city? I think the key to understanding what he says to this church is in, the, is in a single word repeated three times. 
So to, to help you understand that, I want to go to our lab for a few moments. You have your Bibles open, right? Keep your Bibles open, whether they're digital or hard copy. I, I want you to kind of look with me at what I've done in my Bible. And I want you to mark your Bible in this way or highlight your digital copy because this word mentioned three times will give you the key to understanding what Jesus says to this church, all right? Look with me in your Bible. Do you see verse 13? He says in a complimentary fashion, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And it was, that was considered Satan's throne because of all the de- uh, false worship going on, the temples and so forth. Uh, he says, yet you hold fast my name. You see that? Underline that. It's the first use of the word hold. Look now down in verse 14. He now speaks in a rebuking fashion against those who hold the teaching of Balaam. Do you see that? Same word. Now, let me be an honest expositor with you. In verse 13, they're told to hold fast. In verse 14, they're told to simply hold. And yet in the original Greek language, there isn't a word for fast that's in the text. It's just exactly the same word. Now, I'll explain to you why they put the word fast in, but I just want you to know that, that technically, in the most linguistic fashion, it's the exact same word in 13, as in 14, and as in 15. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, it's not the same mood in the Greek uh, language, but it is the same word. So what you have here is a church. Now, watch this. Here's, how I think, here's what I think is the key to understanding. You have a church who's holding fast to Christ's name, and yet within it, some were holding to the teaching of Balaam, and some were holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This is a church that was trying to hold multiple items that were incompatible with each other. Does that make sense? In a word, just by understanding the word hold here, and we're going to stay here and look at this again, you find that the real, the real issue here was one of compromise. They were trying to hold to Christ while holding the things that were incompatible with Christ. So it'd be like in a church, we have some holding to this and some holding to that and some holding to that, and we're saying that all of it's good. That's impossible. Someone's right and someone's wrong. Does that make sense? This was Pergamum, a church of corrupt compromise, trying to pacify those that actually disagreed fundamentally and yet trying to hold them all together. It's impossible. Now, let me explain to you why the tense of these words shows us this. The word hold in verse 13, the word hold in 14, the word hold in 15 are the exact same word, and they're present tense. They're active voice. These are kind of a, give you a little bit of a linguistic class here, but they're each present tense active voice. What's different about the words is the mood. 14 and 15 It's actually a present active participle. To understand what a participle does, a participle is like putting the ing on the end of a word, and it indicates a current situation that perhaps is going on at the moment. It could have just started, but it's more like, hey, this is happening now. It's almost not necessarily new, but you can sense that this is maybe the newest thing on the scene. You could easily read this like this. I have this against you that you have some there who are holding now to the teaching of Balaam. You also have some there who are holding now to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Does that make sense? As this corrupt doctrine uh, kind of crept in, they began to kind of be enticed by it and thought, well, hey, I'm a Christian, but I think I like that part. I'm going to hold that too. 
oh, I like what they're teaching. I think I'm going to hold that too. Very synchronistic type of attitude. But the word hold in 13 is a present active. The mood is indicative. It's not a participle. The only difference in these two words is that one thing. An indicative tells us this. I know it's a little classroom-like, but follow me, okay? An indicative in Greek language tells us this, that something historically happened as a matter of fact. Does that make sense? It doesn't seem historically like, you know, thousands of years ago, but in other words, something in the past occurred that you can't deny. In this case, there were those who truly, genuinely, in the past, believed in Christ. That makes sense? And yet in the midst of that, watch this. So that's got this indicative sense of like somewhere in the past in this church's life, genuine believers, man, they're there. But yet in the middle of that, you have this present tense situation that Balaam's doctrine's creeping in falsely. The Nicolaitans are getting ground. And so now we have in the midst of true historical believers, those who are trying to embrace false heresies. And the church was forced and faced with having to deal with, with all of these things. And Jesus says, what I have against you is that you're tolerating, you're actually allowing this, you're compromising those who have historically held to Christ, even one who was killed for it, and you're, in, you're, you're just allowing other things to be held on to that actually are incompatible with it. Do you see how this speaks of compromise? So if you had to put this word, uh, this church into a single word, here's what I'd say. It really is a church of compromise. So the word hold kind of clues us into this. They were trying to cling, grasp, multiple yet incompatible items. Let me give you a simple analogy to what this looks like. And this won't work to the nth degree, so don't press this too hard. It won't follow through all the way, okay? But I think you'll get the picture. Because the way my grandson holds things is very similar to this. He's not even two yet. And so whether it's, he has a, a set of cars, little Hot Wheel cars he plays with sometimes at our home. And when he sees them, he wants to grab all of them and place them on the track. So he gets his hands and he picks up as many cars as he can. And he looks at you like, I'm ready to play Hot Wheels. But he's got no hands to even grab one car. So what the end result is that he's really ineffective. It's futile. He can't even enjoy the hot wheel track because he's holding on to all these cars. He should let go of one, grab a car, and then enjoy it. Right? That, that makes sense when you're 10, 15, 30. At one and a half, the more cars, the merrier, right? <laughs> but he does the same thing with cookies. Whether it's actual cookies that you eat or whether it's the plastic kind that... We have this set of plastic cookies and the jar has a little slit and so you practice putting them in the slit and it's supposed to help you with your spatial recognition and, you know, I'm sure tactile improvement, all those things. I just think it's a lot of fun. You turn it over, it makes a moo sound. I'm like, that's a good toy right there, you know. But he'll grab all the cookies, the plastic ones, and he'll see the jar and he'll try to force them in there and he'll look at you and he will not let go of the, of the cookies. He, he can't imagine letting go of something because he feels he's going to lose something, I'm sure. If we open a bag of chocolate animal crackers, both hands go in, both hands come out, but both hands won't fit into his mouth, but he, he won't let go of the cookies. Like, I can't afford to lose a cookie, right? You know what he's doing? 
He's holding multiple objects. I know they're not incompatible in that sense, but in one sense, he won't be able to see the effective result of holding even one item because he's trying to hold multiple items, and so nothing really works in the end. I kept thinking of that picture of my grandson trying to hold multiple things when I read about this church. Yeah, I believe in Christ. Oh, but that looks good. I'll grab that and I'll grab that. And when, when you're holding multiple items, in this case, textually, that are incompatible, what happens is uh, nothing works. It's not just dangerous, it's destructive. And you've compromised what really is, should be your effective hold on one thing by trying to hold multiple things that are incompatible. This is the essence of compromise. It's a double-handed grasp of things that, do, that are not compatible. Such as holding fast to Christ's name. Oh, but we also love what Balaam teaches, that, that we can identify with the culture at all costs, even engaging in sexual immorality. Yeah, let's hold that. Oh, we love the Nicolaitans because, man, they say there's no rules. Let's hold that. What happens is you have a life that of compromise. And where you have a life of compromise, where you have a life of trying to hold multiple yet incompatible things, you will have a life weakness. You'll have a life ready to be attacked and destroyed. You'll have joints, areas, places that are not holding up because you're holding to too many things that don't fit together. This was the church at Pergamum. Now, I want to take a minute and explain to you, if I can, more about the areas in which they compromised. Can I do that? Thanks for the permission. I appreciate it. Um, Because I I think this holds a key to understanding how this church is so relevant now 2,000 plus years later. Look what it says in the text, would you? If hold is the key to understanding what they were struggling with, what was it they were trying to hold in a false way? Well, it says, first of all, that they were holding to the idea that you could eat food sacrificed to idols. That's the first thing. They were holding to that. Balaam was the one who kind of taught that. I'll explain that in a moment. And so they thought, well, let's just do that, yeah. And then the idea of sexual immorality. So here's how I kind of understand these two things. Let me explain them to you. The idea of food being sacrificed to idols really is, in this city, it's the idea of making sure the culture knows that we want to be approved by you, so we'll do whatever it takes for you to say, we're good. We're called Christians, we're part of this church at Pergamon, but we don't want the culture to think that we're that odd, that we're out in left field, so you know what, we're going to participate in their festivities. We're going to participate in their, in their idolatrous, um, pagan, clearly anti-God festivities. Because we would not want the culture to do to us what they did to Antipas. We don't want the culture to think that we're weird. So, so you know what? Have your feast at the idol, at the temple to Zeus. We'll be there. Count us in. We'll eat the meal. We'll have the banquet. We'll participate. I know there'll be lots of prostitutes who will be a part of that false worship experience. Men and women will engage in horrific and immoral acts. In fact, some people in our church will probably do that too. This is what the Pergamon guys say, you know. But you know what? 
We just wouldn't want the culture to think that, that, we, that, that we're that odd. So yeah, we'll come eat food with you. That's what's happening here. It's really an issue of cultural distinction that they compromised. This really uh, uh, foregoing any participation in the idolatrous feast and practices that took place at these false temples, foregoing that would have been a great way to say, you know what, we don't believe that way. But instead they just joined in and jumped in. Now, let me explain to you also, this is not the same thing as Romans chapter 14 or 1 Corinthians 8, even though it's the same phrase. What's the phrase? Paul talks about eating food, sacrificed to idols. In those chapters, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, here's what I think the issue is. And you all go back and check this out and, and do some study. In your room. I only mention it briefly. The issue with Paul was not corporate church identity with the culture. The issue with Paul, with Paul was simply this. Individual believer innocence slash enjoyment. In other words, in those chapters, you don't find people going to the temple and engaging in the festivity and practice as a way to make sure the culture was okay with them. You just find the issue being that of buying meat after the fact. Can we buy meat that was once used in a festival to the idols after the fact in the market? Can we buy that meat and eat it? And Paul said, sure. We know there are no other gods besides the real God. If your conscience allows you to buy that meat after the fact and enjoy it, go for it. Just don't cause someone else to stumble. Don't create guilt on another man's conscience. Barring those things, you're free. He's speaking there of personal, individual freedom slash innocence slash enjoyment. That's not the issue John addresses in Revelation 2. What John's talking about is going to the temples, engaging in the practices so that the culture knows, you know what? He's one of us. She's one of us. And he says he's a Christian. She claims to be a Christian. But they're here, man. We must be a lot more alike than than we realize. Yeah, you probably are, tragically. Does that make sense, guys? The real issue was one of cultural distinction. And the church at Pergamum compromised. They loved, we could use this phrase, they loved the applause of men more than the praise of God. The culture mattered more than Christ. And, and they were willing to sacrifice their Christian identity in order to have the culture's stamp of approval. Now, I don't know what specific areas that is a temptation to you. But I'm going to take the one the text mentions and talk about that for a minute. Because... The one the text mentions is the next one called sexual immorality. What I've discovered is that typically these go hand in hand. It's via changing our sexual standards that often we think will gain the culture's approval. And the church in this area goes dangerously, destructively astray. The church at Pergamon did. They enjoyed the festivities, engaged in immorality. This is what they learned from a man named Balaam. And we'll leave the slide here. Let me just kind of give you a brief minute about Balaam. Balaam was a prophet, but he was not an Israelite prophet. He was a, uh, we might call him a fortune teller. We might call him a seer. 
Another word is diviner or diviner. I'm not sure how you say it exactly. But he was kind of a hired gun. And he would sell himself to the highest bidder, often kings of neighboring nations. This is the Old Testament, Numbers 22, 23, 24, and 25. And so when Israel crossed the Jordan and was on their way to possessing the promised land, he was the king, I believe it's either Midian or Moab, and he got scared because they had just conquered Jericho, the Israelites did, and he's next in line. So he says to himself, I've got to find a way to get out of the wrath of Israel. So he calls Balaam and says, Balaam, can you put a curse on Israel? Balaam says, "Uh, I don't know, let me ask God about that. Now here's what's so incredible. God actually used Balaam as a prophet. He spoke to him. And yet Balaam was not a godly man. Uh, So Balaam three times is asked to curse Israel. And every time they go to the mountain, a different place, they make a sacrifice. And when the king wants Balaam to curse Israel, he actually blesses Israel. When all said and done, the king is furious. And he says, I'm not going to pay you after all. So Balaam's upset that he's not getting his money. And here's what I think happens next. He then tells the king, well, if you really want to overthrow Israel, the way to do it is to invite them into your feast. Invite them into your idolatrous worship festivals. Bring out your women, and they will not be able to resist their sexual urges, and you can conquer them that way. So that's what happens. At a city named Peor, this foreign king kind of infiltrates Israel this way, invites them in, and sure enough, they start participating in idolatrous practices. Adultery and immorality occur, and on the heels of that, God kills 24,000 men in Israel. That's why the teachings of Balaam involve accepting the culture for what it is to the point that you actually drop your sexual standards and engage in what they think is right, but you can't hold that teaching and Christ at the same time. There's a cost to it. Does that make sense? So that's kind of what's in the background here. Cultural distinctions, sexual standards. Now, it's at this point I need to pause and say some things to you. Because we look at Pergamon and we say, wow, those two things, that's... That doesn't seem like it's 2,000 years old. That seems like it's yesterday's headlines. The culture wooing you, wooing the church at large, often via the words of ridicule and mockery, to the point that we sometimes feel pressured to change what God has said, as if, you know, we make up the rules, like, we can't change it. We didn't write it to begin with. We've been delivered a safe, trustworthy, infallible message for thousands of years. Our job is to deliver it safely to the next generation. You don't get to adjust it. That's not your prerogative or mine. Ours is one of proclamation and safeguarding the deposit. But the culture will woo us sometimes and, and ridicule us and mock us and persecute us verbally to the point that sometimes the approval of the culture seems like something we've got to have. I've heard guys say this at different pastors' meetings. Well, well, maybe if we did, and they'll lay something out, this or that, we could reach more people. And sometimes that this or that is actually changing 
something as specific as God's sexual standards. Like, who can actually get married? God tells us marriage is between a man and a woman. We don't have the right to say, to change, or to proclaim that men can marry men now, or that women can marry women. Or let's just not pick on homosexuality, or that a married man can, without biblical reason, leave his wife and marry another woman and steal that man's wife. That's called adultery, Jesus said. You see, guys, sexual standards go beyond the issue of homosexuality. Sexual standards, are God has set them across the board for men and women. Married, unmarried. And we can't afford to compromise those just because the culture is yelling at us to do so. And if you will, we'll give you our thumbs up. I could care less about the culture's approval. Now, when you hear that, and if that gets recorded and it's out there, some will accuse me of being mean. Some will say, well, you're, uh, you're mean-spirited. or You don't love people. That's blatantly false. Did you know that? I have homosexual friends that I love very much, and they know that I think they're wrong. We're friends, though. Do you know that? But I'm not cowing down or bowing down to approving that. I have friends, single people, who have repented just, just recently, in fact, of, of fornication, just in, in a bad way, but said, Todd, we've been wrong. We need to get right. Man, I, I'm their pastor. I'm, I'm going to help them through that. Amen? What I don't do is this. Hear this loud and clear and what the church will never do. We don't accommodate and approve in order to gain acceptance. We call for repentance. Not out of arrogance, not out of being better, not out of judgment. We call for repentance out of obedience to God. Does that make sense, guys? And I hope you're hearing this okay. What Jesus here is saying is the culture should not mean more to you than Christ. And often, with the conventions going on, with Facebook being in our face every day, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchats, and, and so many other social platforms. A, a legitimate, genuine Christian can get the pretty quick impression that they're out in left field if you watch a lot of those streams. Could you agree with that? Now, I'm just going to be really frank with you. I don't have any friends you have on Facebook. You don't have that many friends, by the way, as you think you do on Facebook, but whatever your number says you have, <laughs> uh, if you've got even over 100, there's just, I don't think there's any way to scroll through all those feeds and not at some point realize, why wow, I, I just really think differently than a lot of these people. Okay? And when you like something, I guarantee you that is seen as an approval. I would be very careful what you like. And ask yourself this, why do I have to like this? This seems, this seems perverted. This is disobedience to God. I've seen people celebrate sin on Facebook, and then I've seen other folks like, like it. I'm like, what's with that? What do you mean you like that? 
Now, you may have some disagreement here. I'm just trying to speak to you plainly this morning that I believe it's in those very areas that we compromise. And it's often a small compromise at first. It's a larger one later, and we find ourselves years later suddenly believing and behaving in ways that we never thought we would. You don't believe me? Try this on for size. When's the last time you heard a pastor preach against unbiblical divorce? That divorcing your wife, apart from an unbeliever wishing to leave, or fornication, is wrong. You haven't heard that, I bet, in years. You know why? Because 30 years ago, pastors would preach against it. We'd hold to the Bible standards as delivered by Jesus and Matthew. But it became so culturally acceptable and such a phenomenon that there were so many divorces, we couldn't say that because no one would come to church anymore. And so we just shut up. But did you know the Bible standards have not changed? You can't leave your wife for any reason, men. Women, you can't leave your husband for any reason. Now, will I be criticized for that? I'm sure I will be. Some of you here will probably want to talk to me afterwards. Don't hear that as a graceless extension to someone who's hurting, who's in the middle of a situation that is, is dreadfully sinful, perhaps. Don't hear that as a graceless abandonment of you. Hear it as a grace-filled extension to come to God and experience His mercy and grace even in the middle of your sin, to repent and come to God. In fact, I completely disagree with the culture when it says the church is unloving. Did you know that? Have we at times behaved in unloving ways? Yes. But by and large, it's the church who is actually the most loving of all because we are telling the truth that matters. And when it comes to sexual standards and sexual behavior, this church, for one, will not get hoarse. We're not going to lose our voice and we're not going to grow timid. We will, with grace, mercy, and love, continue to hold to God's standards that adultery is wrong. That fornication, which is sex outside of God's parameters among unmarried people. Adultery is sex outside of God's parameters among married people. Fornication is sex outside of God's parameters among unmarried people. Fornication is wrong. Unbiblical divorce is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Does that make sense, guys? Now, if that brings criticism, if the culture says, oh, we don't like you, I guess that's just the cost of being in love with Christ. And I will choose Christ over the culture every single time. I want you to as well. I make no bones about it. Now, to make sure I accent this a little more, I want to show you a list of something. I want you to see this. Because there are some who will say in response to this message, man, he just picked on sexual sin and especially homosexuality. That's just like all pastors. Well, I'm not doing that. I am picking on sexual sin, but I am picking and and highlighting sexual sin in general of all types. I want you to see that I do believe, and I'll make no bones about this, I believe it is 
in the area of sexual beliefs and behavior that we, we have the greatest opportunity to show our distinctiveness, okay? I believe that. Now, some would say to me, well, Todd, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they'll know us by our love. Watch this. If believing and behaving right sexually isn't the epitome of true love, I don't know what is. So I'll say to you again, this pastor, your pastor, I believe personally, our greatest area of distinction from the culture to the culture is in how we behave and what we believe about sexual matters. And no, this isn't just Pergamum in 90 AD. This is America in 2016. Why do I believe that? Because of these seven, what I would call, vice lists in the New Testament. All right? And I've got to really make tracks here. In these lists, there's a host of sins. Did you know that if you were to take every sin, and I did this on a piece of paper, I listed them out, highlighted different colors. You take these seven or eight passages, you list every single sin. Over 33% of the sins are sexual in nature. In fact, in the Romans 1 passage, every other sin listed follows a list of sexual sins, which indicates to us what might be the root cause of a lot of dysfunction. And you take the list as a whole, out of the seven lists, five of them begin, what heads the list is a sexual sin. So I say to you, without any apology, and with great conviction, and a lot of compassion, the greatest area the church has in which to show its distinction from the culture to the culture is in its beliefs and behavior about sexuality. And what is the one area the church seems to be dropping the ball in our beliefs and behavior about sexuality. I would encourage you, hold to the name of Christ and let go of the Nicolaitans of the 21st century. Let go of the teaching of Balaam in the 21st century and hold fast to the name of Christ and the teaching of Scripture. If you compromise, even in what seems to be a small thing to you, it will end up in a large collapse later. And that's really the gist of our take-home truth. Write this down briefly. Would you just quickly jot this down? Here's kind of what we've been saying through this entire text, and I've got a lot still to cover. I'm going to have to wait until next week. We'll see. But here's really what we're saying, that subtle distortions in our beliefs can lead to serious and sinful decadence in our behavior. And Balaam is, is one example, how he infiltrated and de- deceived the people of Israel via King Balak. And this had corporate and individual consequences. Remember, small compromises are the trap that bring about a large collapse. Case in point, this Friday will be the seventh anniversary of the bridge collapse in Minneapolis. I believe it's called, is it W35 or 35W? 35W. Seven years ago, the bridge collapsed. you know why it collapsed? The National Transportation Safety Board, after research, has concluded they think it's because of a small, what they call a gusset plate. If you were to see all the parts of that bridge, you wouldn't think the gusset plate's the first thing you're going to notice. It's actually just a, 
a steel plate in which all the beams come in and it holds them all together. There's a lot bigger beams in the bridge and there's a lot more concrete to the bridge. But because the gusset plate was faulty, the bridge collapsed. It's a small item in the bridge's overall construction. But it's one of major importance. This Friday, Minnesotans will drive across that bridge and I bet many of them will wish someone had caught the gusset plate seven years ago. I don't want to wake up in seven years and wonder, what happened at First Family? I wish we'd have caught... And you just named where we had a small compromise. We need to be vigilant now to look after the small areas. By the way, not only do the, do the specifics of this text matter, I just want to mention this briefly. The sequence matters as well. You notice it says here that it started with Balaam and then affected Israel. Mark this down. Compromise always starts with the leaders and then affects the people. So if you're wondering, like, well, Todd, why, why are you so adamant today? Why are you so convictingly clear? It's because you matter. One of my roles here that I embrace wholeheartedly with our elders, deacons, and staff is to lead the church. Sometimes leadership means voicing the obvious when no one wants to say it. And our culture is wrong about sex. And God is right about it. And for this pastor and this church, we're sticking with God. Will they think we're odd? Well, they already do. Okay? Don't kid yourself. You're living in a dreamland if you think that, that the world thinks you're pretty cool. They don't. Could it mean imprisonment? Could it mean we lose our tax credit one day? Yeah, I don't care. The greatest test for this church will be, at least in my opinion, one of the greatest tests will be the day the government revokes our ability to write off our giving as for our taxes. We'll find out then who really believes in sacrificial giving to God's work. You with me? So I don't fear that at all. I don't fear prison. I don't fear being mocked. I believe God. And I believe this infallible, unchanging word. And I believe that the one who brings the sword in his mouth will protect us and give us victory. He will reward us. It may not be in the ways we think on this earth. Some of us may see the same end as Antipas. Did you know that? There may be martyrs among us. Who knows? They've had them in the Middle East already. It may come to America to that extent. I don't know. I'm just saying to you, as one of your leaders, I don't take that lightly, but that doesn't scare me and, want me to, and, and cause me to let go of God's truth. And I don't want you to let go. I want you to endure faithfully. All right? But here's why you can. Because the one you're enduring faithfully for, he will fight for you. Look what it says here. The end of 16, he says, I will come to you soon and wage war against them. Here's what he says about Christ himself. And he's going to wage war against those who are false and pretenders with the sword of his mouth. Now, here's what's so interesting about this. There are many phrases in these last few verses that talk about Christ. Hidden man, a white stone, a new name, a sharp two-edged sword. 
But this one in verse 16, the sword of his mouth, is a reference, I believe, to the angel that encountered Balaam. Remember, Balaam's a big part of this text. So Balaam's going to see the king, and three times the donkey won't go. And so Balaam beats the donkey. He's going to kill the donkey, and God enables the donkey to speak and correct Balaam. That's amazing, isn't it? When Balaam's eyes are opened, what does Balaam see? He sees an angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand. And the angel says, if you'd have gone further, Balaam, I would have killed you. Read it, Numbers 21 through about 25. So when a Jew reads this letter and he reads that Jesus is going to come and wage war with the sword of his mouth, he's thinking, hey, that's what he did to Balaam. God protected Israel and rewarded Israel. He didn't let a, a, a hired prophet affect him. He didn't let a false king and a foreign king affect him. God protected his people. Guess what? God is going to protect you as well. He's got you. So when the culture is coming after you, when it looks like you're diametrically opposed to your friends around you, when you think, man, do I even fit? Don't worry. Christ has got you. He'll reward you. He'll protect you. Do not let go of Christ. He will not let go of you. That's why we don't have to compromise. Because we're in Christ's hands. The words hidden manna, a white stone, a new name, I think they all refer to things that were part of Israel's journey to the promised land, this idea of victory. So each of these descriptors of Christ kind of refers to his idea of victor, especially the one about the sword in his mouth. He will reward us. He'll protect us. So can I just ask you, church, especially in regards to sexual beliefs and behavior, hold to God's word. Young people who are single, Swim upstream. Stay pure. Is it hard? Yes. Sex drives are strong. I'm not denying any of that. Some of you say, well, Todd, you're married. It's easy for you. Mm, marriage is great. You're right about that. But I, too, was once single. And just those, those scenarios don't change God's word. Let's live with God's standards as our foundation. When it comes to gender, marriage, behavior, and beliefs about sex, God makes the rules. You see, our issue in America, our issue in churches that are compromising, it's really not an addiction issue. Whether it's sexual addiction, drug addiction, uh, you know, some other kind of addiction, we think that's the issue. Our issue is an authority issue. And the minute we say, God, you call the shots. You'd be surprised the progress you can make on your addictions. But we love to put our fist in God's face and say, you know what? I don't like that part of the rules. I'm going to make my own rules. I'm going to hold this. I'm going to hold that. I'm going to hold that. And you cannot hold incompatible items at the same time. It's called compromise. And it always leads to destruction. Let go of what's false. Hold to Christ. I've got to quit. Let's pray.